there's a danger lurking in your water. We've known about its effects on health for over a hundred years, usually as a result of poisoning. Now we're learning that there are other effects that can impact you and maybe your future generations. If you're not worried, you probably should be. Because we're talking about lead. This week, we're going to explore the problems associated with lead exposure that you may not have heard in the news. We'll learn about how it impacts intelligence and how it may also affect the mental health not only of those exposed, but maybe even their children. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out why it is so difficult to remove lead from our modern world and how you may still be able to stay safe. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to help you understand why lead exposure is such a problem and why it's not going away anytime soon. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Let me take you back to the Roman Empire. It was a time of advancement and discovery for civilization. And one of the most useful elements at the time was lead. It was perfect for engineering. It was hardy. It was durable. Back then, they had no idea of the health consequences of exposure. All that mattered was the maintenance of their new lifestyle. And nothing was more important than the provision of water. Their methods stuck with us for millennia until the mid-1800s when it became clear that the lead in our water was making us sick. But rather than get rid of it altogether, officials tried to find a balance between cost and health. Lead was acceptable, as long as it wasn't too high. Today we know that there are no safe levels and any exposure is dangerous. Prolonged exposure can lead to high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney disease, reduced fertility, and possibly even cancer. But what you may not know is that the effects are not limited to our bodies. They can also affect our brains. Here to tell us more about these effects is Gina Muckle, who is one of the world's predominant experts on heavy metal exposure and the brain. She is a professor in the School of Psychology at Laval University. What does lead exposure do to the body and the brain? Well, you know, among all the contaminants that have been studied so far in relation to child development, lead is certainly the most ever studied uh, chemical. And um, overwhelming scientific evidence demonstrates that it is toxic to several systems, including the brain, the nervous system, and, but also other systems such as the cardiovascular, reproductive, and immune systems. After birth exposure occur via ingestion, inhalation, and dermal absorption, and uh, lead circulates in the bloodstream, and some of it is absorbed into soft tissues such as the liver, kidneys, and lungs, and a high, very high proportion of lead is absorbed and transferred to bone where it accumulates over time and remains for a very long period. Children are particularly sensitive to the effect of lead for several reasons. 
a greater proportion, uh, they, they ingest a greater proportion of lead uh, in their gastrointestinal tract than adults. Their nervous system, uh, because of its immaturity, is more vulnerable to the effect of lead than that of the adults. The problem with lead is that it is able to mimic substances that are beneficial to body functioning and in doing so is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And once lead is in the nervous system, it enters neurons and other cells, thereby interfering with processes including um, formation of myelin uh, on the neurons, it can damage um, similar cellular membranes, inhibits the activity of neurotransmitters such as dopamine, and also disrupts thyroid hormone transport, which are processes very important for proper um, brain development. But we always hear about bioaccumulation. You're saying that lead actually mimics functioning proteins and, and other molecules in the body? Is that really what's happening? Yes, that's the way it is perturbing normal processes affecting the development of the central nervous system cells. So if that's the case, then prenatal exposure must be absolutely horrible when it comes to neurodevelopmental abilities. Well, the interesting things about lead is that we have much more evidence that this is exposure during the first two to three years of life that is more affecting later neurobehavioral development. And there is much less evidence that prenatal exposure is also uh, affecting later development. Uh, when I'm saying that, I'm focusing on studies that have been conducted with low-exposed children, those that are at a level of exposure seen nowadays in, in the Canadian population. For most of the environmental contaminants to date so far, this is prenatal exposure that is more deleterious for, for child development because of the immaturity of the, all the systems of, of the fetus. So take us then through what happens in the postnatal, in those first few years as a child is growing. What is the lead doing to their neurodevelopmental system and, and just generally their overall growth? The effect of low lead exposure are pernicious because they do not cause visible health problems such as physical malformation or development, severe developmental disorders which explains why children are not seen by health professionals. But over the last 25 years, a very large number of well-designed studies have demonstrated adverse effects of low lead exposure during infancy and childhood on three big, three main outcomes. The first one is effects on intellectual functioning of children, which include IQ, Oh, we all, we, everybody knows what is intellectual quotient or IQ. You're increasing the number of children who have an IQ at, at, a, at a level of mental deficiency, and this has a cost, a long-time cost. We've seen also effects on child attention, executive functioning, which includes 
working memory and problem solving, which are abilities important for learning uh, in children. The other category of effect that we have seen in numerous studies so far are the negative effects on academic achievement. We have very good research that uh, following children up to grade 8 supporting this. And the third category of effects we're seeing is uh, effect on problem behaviors, especially ADHD or high attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Those effects are also well documented. And as a matter of fact, two systematic reviews were published this year involving studies designed to document if lead exposure is related to ADHD, and both concluded that there are enough evidence to establish that there's an association between low exposure and ADHD. You've just set up until grade 8, but your research also suggests that we see effects well into adolescence. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, we have conducted uh, a research in, in the Inuit population in Nunavik, North, in northern Quebec, since the last 25, over the last 25 years. And when those children were uh, 11 years of age, we um, reported that um, lead exposure was related to ADHD behaviors which were documented uh, from the classroom teachers. And we um, successfully followed this bird cohort of Inuit children at age 19 years old. Um, and what we found is an um, indirect association between lead exposure at age 11 and externalizing behaviors and substance use at age 19 years old. In other words, what we saw is that early life exposure play a role in fostering and maintaining behavior problems from childhood to early adulthood. The change in the developmental tra trajectory observed at school age persists later on. When we hear about lead being a problem, we tend to visualize the poor, those who are remotely located, or happen to have just suffered some kind of natural disaster. But your research is saying that pretty much everybody can be affected. I'm wondering if you can go a little bit into that, and also, how important is it that we just simply avoid exposure altogether, as opposed to trying to minimize it? Yeah, there's many questions and many, uh, many, many good points in your question. Uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when this issue started about lead exposure, it's true that children who were seen in a hospital in the United States who, who were very, very highly exposed, actually they were poisoned by lead, were uh, living in poor neighborhoods. But since we have seen over the last 15 years that there's no safe level of exposure with regard to lead, which means that we've seen negative effects of lead at levels very, very low that can be seen in, in the whole population, actually, because we're, we're seeing level, effects at levels below uh, 2 microgram per deciliter. Uh, and even if negative effects below one, a large proportion of the population uh, might be exposed at, at levels where we are seeing negative effects. So there's nobody 
safe. Have you ever wondered what traits we pass on to our children? I'm not talking about height, bone structure, hair, or eye color. I'm talking about mental health. There is evidence to suggest that we can pass on mental health issues to our children through our genes. It's known as epigenetics, and we continue to learn more about how our traumas in the present can affect our young ones in the future. Now, what if that trauma is not based on exposure to life, but lead? It may seem like a wild theory, but our next guest was involved in a study that revealed this might actually be the case. It started off with a question as to whether exposure could be related to suicide. But the results ended up revealing something far more ominous. His name is Sidney Kennedy, and he is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto and the Arthur Summer Rotenberg Chair in Suicide and Depression Studies. He is one of the authors of this study and is here to share his observations with us. We've heard that lead can affect our intelligence. How does it affect our mental health? So I think there are a limited number of studies that have really addressed this, but there does seem to be a consensus that exposure to lead in childhood is associated with an increase in a number of mental health issues later on in life. And in some cases, there have been lead levels in blood drawn to, to link the higher blood levels with disorders, including alcohol abuse, uh, social anxiety. For example, there was a, a large U.S. study where elevated blood levels of lead were associated with impulsivity, anxiety, and depression in adults. Was that then the impetus to find a link between lead exposure and suicide? Well, I, I think this was an initiative that was actually triggered by my colleague, Gerald McKinley, who's a co-author on the publication. He was interested in some coroner's correspondence noting the exposure to lead-containing gasoline in the 1980s. Uh, particularly in the First Nations communities and in uh, northwestern Ontario. So th there was an attempt to try and uh, find out about the uh, coroner's records on suicide in the communities in relation to lead. And so they did actually find that death by suicide um, was in many cases associated with very high levels of lead. And by that, I would say that five micrograms per 100 mils in blood would be a level above which neurological damage could occur. And in fact, some of the uh, post-mortem findings had lead levels tenfold higher, so approximately 50 micrograms per 100 mils. It was recognized in the 1990s so that the gasoline-containing lead was made illegal in Canada. And so from that point on, it's really the residual effects of the uh, lead in gasoline. But I think you also have to think about the effect that lead can have on, if you like, genetic transmission. So while it wouldn't alter DNA, the whole what we would call epigenetic mechanisms where you can actually translate environmental stressors can affect 
the genetic transmission to the next generation. We can have children from the born to parents of the, for example, the 80s still having and passing on abnormalities that could be related to lead toxicity. So a historical study such as this one, where we really are looking into the past, does have a link to our present because it's more than just real-time exposure over the course of someone's lifetime. This could potentially be intergenerational. That is correct. This study was done here in Canada, but it does have an international reach, does it not? It has an international reach, and it has been validated in other countries. So, for example, in South Korea, studies have been done in workers who were exposed to lead in the course of their work life, and in fact, increased self-harm and death by suicide were also correlated with blood levels, in this case, higher than uh, 20 micrograms per mil. And the uh, relationship to self-harm was also noted. So suicide rates in males and self-harm in uh, females were increased. So I I think that's an example of almost a replication in another country. And of course, a, a famous name associated with lead toxicity is Van Gogh, who ingested lead oil paints for more than a decade before he died by suicide. Does this suggest then that we should be very much looking out for lead in any type of environment? Well, it's a, I think it's a very good question. I, I think you're probably aware of a number of cities where they're investing over the next several decades to get rid of lead pipes uh, in the you know to transmit water. I think lead is still at unacceptably, not as high levels as we talked about earlier, but still at unacceptably high levels in our water supply. I think there's lead residue in soil. We, for all we know, we're eating vegetables, we're eating uh, even meat from cattle who've grazed on fields that uh, had high levels of of lead in the soil. So the atmosphere, the uh, food supply, the soil and the water supply, I think, can all be sources of increased lead levels. And from that perspective, the whole idea of a study such as this is to provide perspective for us as opposed to producing fear, obviously. Correct. And, and really to say that just because it's not in the gasoline supply doesn't mean that we're not exposed to it. And I think I just want to take it one step further by saying, even in the paper, it's not just the lead that is playing a role. There are a number of other factors that are involved in mental health, and they do have to be taken into consideration. It's just in this particular case, the exposure to lead may have made the conditions worse for these individuals. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that Many of these factors, lead could be one of a number of factors, and socioeconomic conditions are important. How people, I mean, for example, sniffing gasoline continues among youth in both Aboriginal and in other uh, lower socioeconomic communities. And so I think there is a, an issue there that that may be 
while there's no lead involved, it may also be damaging the individual. And and that may also be part of the increased rate of, su- of death by suicide, for example, and the higher number of attempts of suicide. I think it's. Uh, I think there are many variables. Lead could, in fact, be seen as a proxy for many of the other socio-economic factors. It's Ask Last Time, and today we're going to answer the one question you probably have in your mind right now. If lead is so dangerous, why don't we just get rid of it? Well, our guest teacher is here to answer it, although you may not like what you're about to hear. Thankfully, she's also got some tips to help us stay safe. Her name is Adrienne Katner, and she is an assistant professor in environmental and occupational health at Louisiana State University. Why is lead such a problem now? Or has it always been that way and we're just aware of it? No, lead has been a problem. However, we were a lot more concerned in the prior years with the amount of lead coming from gasoline, from leaded gasoline, um, and also from paint. But we, as we, you know, have passed these regulations to ban lead in gasoline and paint, we have come down to, you know, some of the more minor sources, but yet, you know, they're minor, but they're still, you know, a problem because within the last few decades, we've learned that there is no safe level of exposure to lead. They're seeing health impacts at the lowest amounts that we can measure in blood, impacts on reproductive outcomes. And these are of such concern that we really need to minimize all exposure to lead. But we've heard about lead quite rarely, to be honest with you, over the years. It's popped up here and there, but then Flint happened. And now it's everywhere. We keep seeing reports coming out. We're hearing about new techniques to be able to remove lead. And even, you know, the idea that maybe not everybody is doing what they're supposed to in order to make sure we're protected from lead. I mean, it just kind of came out of nowhere after Flint. Was it really a tipping point when it came to public awareness? The media helped bring it to public awareness. Um, However, water quality engineers have known for a long time about the hazards of lead in water. Um, And it was in early 1990s that we passed this lead and copper rule regulation because we knew that there was lead in plumbing um, and that it could be, you know, it could leach out and expose people. I think it took a long time for, you know, it's still taking a long time. I mean, even public health officials, um, they're not all quite on board with the, the problems that, that water, lead in water can pose. There is a misperception that w- drinking water regulations are all protective of health, and that's not the case with the lead and copper rule. You know, the EPA has always acknowledged that what we can do is we can screen for the most, the more problematic areas in the country, but this is not a health protective uh, regulation. I'm wondering then, does that mean that policies essentially are just catching up and doing a poor job of it? Or is there something else that's happening whereby people simply think that, well, if you have a little bit of exposure, eh, it's manageable, but uh, we're just trying to make sure that it's not going to get to a point where we're going to start seeing those health impacts that will eventually cost us down the road. I think this is a difficult topic because of the enormous amount of money that is going to be required to replace the leaded plumbing that really exists all over the country. And you're also talking about a lot of money for utilities to sample 
the water. You really, on, a, on an annual basis, or at least every three years, utilities are required to go out and take samples of this water to, and then analyze it for lead and copper. I do think that it's partially a little bit about regulations are a little bit dated. There, it always takes a while before regulatory officials, before uh, politicians really come up to speed with where the science is. But, you know, again, this is going to cost so much money that there are some politicians who are, are reluctant, you know, to bring this matter, to address this matter, because, again, how do we pay for it? You know, this is going to cost somewhere in the billions, trillions, if not. And then we have to find where the lead is. A lot of cities don't even have any kind of audits of where these lead pipes um, were laid down. And many of them are, you know, over 100 years old now. We know that policy and legislation is a trade-off. You're never going to be making everybody happy, and more likely than not, you're going to make everybody unhappy. When it comes to that, a lot of people tend to take the issue into their own hands. They have their own actions. And I'm sure that there's probably a market out there right now to be um, helping people address the lead issues. I know that you're doing a little bit of research in this, and I'm wondering if you can share with us what could possibly work and what definitely doesn't work. Um, one of the things we found was, you, you know, you always hear this thing, oh, we'll just run your water for about 30 seconds and you'll clear it out of lead. That's a fallacy. If you have a lead service line, you know, this is the line from the main in the street to the home. It usually takes about 30 seconds for that water that's sitting in that lead service line to get to your tap. So that's not really a good exposure recommendation, you know, a way to reduce exposure. It's a good way to dump, you know, if you do have lead in your plumbing, it's a good way to get rid of it. But that's not, you know, the way that you want to go about totally reducing your exposure. Probably the best that we have are filters, these NSF certified filters. You want to look for the NSF 53 and you want to make sure that it says on the box that it removes lead. However, we see these are not perfect either. So we see in Newark right now, if you have really high levels of lead in your water, some of the filters may not work adequately enough. We're also doing some filter tests here down in Louisiana, and we, we even see spikes in filtered water of lead. So we need to be cautious, um, and we're still learning what are the best ways to reduce this. Of course, the best thing to do would be to remove all leaded plumbing, but that's a cost that a lot of homes can't really afford. Some people are turning to bottled water. Well, that's not a perfect solution either. Um, we're learning more about the lack of regulatory oversight and um, enforcements in the bottled water industry. And the truth is that tap water is more regulated than bottled water. So what do we do? I tell people, get a filter. And if you are still worried, test your water. You can go and get these little kits at Home Depot or Lowe's to actually collect a sample and ship it out to a lab. I think it's worth testing, especially if you're a family, you're a mother, you have children in the household. You want to make sure that you can get that lead down as low as you can get it. I do want to ask you one more question, and I know I feel like I'm adding fuel to the fire, but you're in Louisiana, and it's had its fair share of natural problems, say floods, hurricanes, that type of thing. And I know that that in itself could make the whole lead situation worse. And I'm wondering, could you take us through the Louisiana example just to give us a perspective of what it looks like and what we should be prepared for in areas where we are susceptible to climate change, natural disasters, and other problems? 
drinking water infrastructure is unique. It's it's unlike maybe highway infrastructure in that the less you use it, actually, the greater the likelihood of corrosion um, and breakdown. And so when you are gone for a long period of time from your house, say because of a hurricane or a flood or even a vacation, and you come back to the house, you are more likely to have very high levels of lead in your water for a time because you've just allowed it to leach out uh, into the water. So you want to make sure when you're coming back to a house after a natural disaster or after any long period of time, you flush that water out really well. You flush out and you run your sinks, all the sinks in the home, for you know a good 10, 15 or lo- you know minutes or longer to get out any debris that's been sitting there to you know get out any corrosion or metal leaching that may have happened when you've been away. Um, and another thing is, you know, especially what New Orleans is facing, and this is really more on the government side, we really need to start thinking of how are we going to be able, you know, how can we afford to replace our infrastructure? This is something that, you know, the government needs to start thinking about now. I remember when I was seeing the results of Katrina, Lake Pontchartrain was a complete cesspool of chemicals. And I can only imagine that when people were putting together the new housing, they put everything on stilts, essentially. Everything is raised up so that there's no chance for the flooding. But when it comes to drinking water, that's not going to help, is it? You really have to just follow these in order to be able to be sure that you're at least minimizing your exposure. Yes, even with all the rebuilding that happened, you know, along the Gulf Coast after Katrina, the lead service lines usually remained under the ground because that's a lot harder to replace than you know, the plumbing that's in your home. Um, essentially, these lines can run under the street concrete, they can run under the sidewalks, they can run under trees. And so it's a lot harder to replace them. So we did get some funding from FEMA to replace um, and to, you know, improve our, our infrastructure under the ground, so in, to improve the water lines, the gas lines and such. But it's a slow process. I mean, if you think about it, you really have to tear up the streets and sidewalks of every single street in the city in order to be able to do this. And so you're going to have to plan that it's going to take years, especially in these large cities like New Orleans. So, yeah, again... Some people think, oh, the house was just repaired and built. It's a new house. It's going to be great. Well, most likely it's still being served by the old service line um, under the ground. Well, that's it for this week's SaskCast. I hope it has helped you understand the unknown risks of lead exposure and how you can take action to prevent them from happening to you. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support has been overwhelming. And if you're just finding us today, please check out some of our other episodes on health-related matters such as Parkinson's disease, Lyme disease, and bullying. We're into our second year now, and we are more focused on what you want to hear. Send me a tweet at jatetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. 
The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.